So happy December to y'all. Three, three weeks from today, we celebrate Christmas morning. Believe it or not, I don't know if you're ready, but it's about that time to start getting ready if you're not. But I want to start December with a pop quiz, okay? I'm going to give you five seconds to at least answer in your head. When I say the words Christmas nemesis, who do you think of? Who is someone in your head that is against Christmas? Five, four, Three, someone who hates Christmas, two, one, stop. Now, maybe as you thought about that question, maybe you thought the Grinch. Um, like maybe that was the first thing to pop in your head. The Grinch hates Christmas. Or maybe it was Griswold's boss who wasn't going to give them a Christmas bonus, but instead was going to give them a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. Or maybe it was Ebenezer Scrooge. Maybe that great story, A Christmas Carol, kind of the, the pre-three ghost of Christmas Scrooge was who you thought of. Maybe it was the crooks from Home Alone that were going around and stealing the Christmas Christmas gifts when people were out of town, or maybe you're in the newer generation and it was Buddy the Elf's dad. Maybe when you think of someone who hates Christmas, it's Buddy's dad um, before his son from the North Pole came to visit him. All of these people played a character who hated Christmas, but no one was against Christmas more than someone I want to introduce you to today from Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, and I want to introduce you to a man named Herod. If uh, you have a bulletin, pull out the sermon notes from your bulletin so you can take notes today, or you can fire up our Journey Church International app. All the scripture I read and reference, all of our notes will be on that so that you can follow along. Um, but today we're going to dig into Matthew chapter 2. We'll actually be here again next week. It's going to take two weeks to kind of teach through everything in Matthew chapter 2. And we're beginning today a month at journey called Life at the Manger. We're going to live at the manger. We're going to live at the Christmas story all month long at journey. And it will culminate uh, in our Christmas week services. For four weeks, we're going to look and learn about Christmas from the Bible. But then on Christmas week, we're going to celebrate with six services that I want you to be aware of for this purpose. Uh, you say, man, why are you doing so many services? One, that's probably, we think, how many services we're going to have to do for all of our people to be able to come to at least one. But with a service strategy like this, two services on Friday, December 23rd, Four services on Christmas Eve. All of those are the exact same service, by the way. We won't have any services on Sunday, Christmas Day, and here's why. I understand that's one of the holiest days of the year. It takes about 200 volunteers for us to do church on Sunday morning like you see us doing church on Sunday morning. Um, and I struggle to ask 200 families to give me four to six hours of their Christmas day to come and be at church. So we're going to ask them to serve Friday. We're going to ask them to serve Saturday. And Sunday, we're going to let all of our people celebrate Christmas day with their families. But we're going to do church big time on Christmas Eve. And here's what we want to ask you to do this Christmas. We want to ask you as you look at this service schedule to think about three services. And here's why. We want you to think about which service you're going to come to with your family to celebrate Christmas, to take communion, to hear the Christmas story, um, and to really just pull back for 60 minutes before your family does their Christmas holiday tradition and just to really focus on Jesus. That's what we want you to do for one service. We also want you to think about having a service that you bring somebody to a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker that might not fit with your entire family on your Christmas service, but somebody you've been wanting to tell about Jesus, we want you to choose one of these services to bring somebody to that's not your family, just to be a bringer that service for somebody who you've been trying to introduce to Jesus and church. And then we want you to think about serving one of those services. It will take our entire church helping 
to be able to pull off all these services. So we want you to think about when you look at this slate of service, which one can I serve? Which one can I bring someone to? And then which one will be my family's personal Christmas? They can all be right together. They can be on different days. But we're going to need everyone at Journey to think that way to make Christmas week what we want it to be at our church. But today we begin the Christmas month in Matthew chapter Two. And we read as we go back to the manger the words of Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. And here's how he describes that first Christmas morning. He says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, came, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Then they quoted from Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this passage and we're going to learn. But I want you in your head to go back with me to Bethlehem. It's kind of easy to do, actually, because of how prominent the nativity is in the world that we live in. Like, the nativity is the first ever, like, mannequin challenge, right? Where, like, people are frozen in time and you can walk around them. So go back to the nativity with me. I want you to see Jesus in the manger and Mary and Joseph. And you can kind of see the familiar animals that are around. And you can picture the wise men with their gift bowing down. And you can picture the shepherds and some angels. And you can probably picture that star over the manger. We, we could probably if I gave you a sketch piece of paper, we could kind of draw the elements of the nativity of Christmas. But nowhere in the nativity anywhere do we see Herod, even though Herod is one of the focal points of Matthew's story about Christmas. As a matter of fact, when you read Matthew chapter 2, you see kind of tension between two kings, Jesus who was born king of the Jew and uh, Jews and Herod who was the current king of the Jews. To really understand Christmas, you have to know who King Herod is and you have to understand why he's in the Christmas story. And if we can learn that today, I think it will begin to allow us to experience Christmas the way God wants us to this year. To really understand the first Christmas, you have to know Herod. So I've given you some cliff notes um, on your sermon notes. I've given you 10 things about Herod that you should know that I'm just going to kind of work through quickly to introduce you to this person that we're going to study today. Herod uh, was known as Herod the Great by historians. Now, Herod was not a name. Herod was a title like president or prime minister. So Herod's dad was Herod. Herod's boys were Herod, usually and followed by the region that they ruled over. But Herod that we find in Matthew chapter 2 was known as Herod the Great. He was the biggest and the greatest and the most powerful one. His dad was appointed governor of Judea by Julius Caesar, the great Roman emperor who ruled over the Palestinian area. His dad was in charge of that area while Julius Caesar was emperor in Rome. But Herod was appointed not governor, but king of the Jews 
by Octavian and Antony and the entire Roman Senate in 40 BC after being driven from Palestine by the Parthians. Tell me if this story sounds familiar. A radical group from the country of Iran, which was called Parthia back then, basically broke into Israel and drove all the Jews out of Israel because they thought it was their land. The Jews were driven to North Africa. Herod worked his way up to Rome and basically said they've taken away the land. What do do we do with it? Um, And Rome wanted the Jews to control it rather than the people from Parthia or modern-day Iran. So they sent Herod back with an army from Rome. He retook the land. They named him king of the Jews, and they basically let him kind of have pretty free reign in Israel. Herod was of Edomian descent. say, what do you mean by that? I, I mean he was a descendant of Abraham through Esau who founded the country of Edom. So he's related to the the forefather of the Jewish faith, but not through the forefather of the Jewish faith. He he wasn't Jewish. The Jews were descendants of Abraham through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and they became a nation. Um, And since he wasn't Jewish, he married a prominent Jewish heiress of the Hasmonean dynasty because he wanted to become acceptable to the Jewish people. He wanted to be accepted as one of them. The Hasmoneans were kind of like the Kennedys, The Clintons, the Bushes, they were a very well-known political family in Israel 2,000 years ago. And he thought, if I become one of them, they will accept me and I can truly be their king. He's still renowned in history for his building projects that he built. In 2018, our church will go back to Israel. I'd love for you to come with me. When we go, we'll visit these places Herod built. They're still standing today. The Temple Mount that Herod built. The Western Wall that people pray at today. Herod built 2,000 years ago. It's still there. The Fortress of Masada down across from the Dead Sea. You can still visit and walk through today. Herod built it 2,000 years ago. The seaport of Caesarea, which is one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth on the Mediterranean Sea. You can go to. Herod built that 2,000 years ago. And he's called the great because of the great building projects that he left behind. But he's also remembered for being cruel and merciless. His wife that he married to get into the kind of the Jewish political hierarchy, he ended up killing her. He killed her brother who was the high priest of Israel. He ended up killing the three sons that he had by his wife because he thought the people might like them more than him, and he eventually killed his mother-in-law. Some of you think, okay, well, what's so bad about the last one? You shouldn't think that way um, in church, but some of you might be. Um, but Herod was like, was like a bad dude. Um, he was merciless and cruel if anyone was a threat to him. And his primary motivation, when you really read the history, the primary motivation of his life and his leadership was to have authority, was to have control, And he desperately wanted the adoration of his bosses in Rome and his subjects in Israel. He just wanted to be liked and accepted by people. As a matter of fact, we're told Herod, five days before he died, he had the most prominent uh, businessmen and political leaders in Jerusalem all arrested and held. And he told his army, he said, the minute I die, kill all of them. Because I want history to remember Jerusalem as a town in mourning when I died. And no one will cry when I die. But if we kill everyone who's influential, the whole city will mourn and they'll lower the flags to half-mast. And then global historians will write that when Herod died, Jerusalem mourned. He was merciless and cruel. And for everyone in the year 2016 who's really worried about culture trying to remove Christmas um, and Jesus from what we celebrate... You need to understand, Herod didn't try to kill Christmas. He tried to kill Jesus. And in trying to kill Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 2 that he murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem that were under the age of two, probably a dozen. 
maybe 20 kids and families negatively impacted in a town that size 2,000 years ago. Probably not hundreds of people under the age of two that were boys, but probably a dozen to 20 kids were killed because Herod was threatened by Jesus being the king of the Jews. And I believe Herod is in scripture not to teach us a history lesson, but a spiritual lesson. I believe Matthew put Herod in the Christmas narrative because all of us have a little King Herod inside of us. All of us have a little King Herod inside of us that is just slightly threatened by Jesus being in charge of our life and of every area of our life. This is why we're studying him today. I think this is why Matthew put him in here. You know, Matthew wasn't just recording spiritual history, even though he's a great historian. He was recording what I refer to as a divine spiritual mystery. See, that's how I see scripture as a divine spiritual mystery. Every word placed where it was for a specific reason to teach us something deeper than what we learned just reading it. The Bible's not just history. It is history, but it's not just history. It's spiritual history, which means to really understand the Bible, you don't read it with your eyes, you read it with your heart. To really understand the Bible, you can't just think about it with your mind, you've got to think about it with your soul. And to really obey the Bible, it's not just learning a certain thing, it's living a certain way. There's a divine spiritual mystery that causes us to dig deep in Scripture. When I say we we search for a divine mystery, I'm talking about digging beneath the surface. Do any of you have a dog or a cat or an animal, like before they get comfortable where they're going to lay down, like they try to scratch a hole in the couch or the bed or the pillow or the floor, and they'll stand in a certain place and they'll scratch, 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 and they'll walk away and they'll scratch, scratch, scratch before they settle and lay down. I believe that's how we're supposed to study the word of God. I believe we're supposed to get on top of the word of God and we're supposed to scratch it apart and dig deep and look deeper. And then I think we're supposed to kind of ruffle up our soul and get it nice and soft. And then I think we connect the word of God with the soul that God put in us. And we say, okay, God, what can I see in Matthew? In Matthew chapter two is screaming at us. You need to see Herod. You need to know about Herod. You need to know who he is and you need to understand where he lives in your life. Can I get transparent for a minute? Can I just get honest about the way I was raised? I was raised in a very small town culture, in very traditional, very well-meaning churches that taught me that the enemies of of Jesus, the, the enemies of the cross, were people who said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Those were the threats to Jesus. I was raised to be offended when the store didn't have red cups at Christmas because that meant that they didn't love Jesus or recognize God anymore. I was raised to be appalled when the public schools started calling Christmas parties winter parties and they started singing not just about Christmas, but they started singing about Kwanzaa and they started singing about Hanukkah, which by the way, Jesus would have celebrated every year that he was alive on earth. I I was raised that those things were major threats to Christianity. I was raised that secular Christmas was a threat to Christianity. And some of us, we still have to figure those things out in our head. Can I I be honest for a minute? There are some people in our church, I know this for a fact, that are really bothered when they walk into church and they hear our band do a song like we opened with today, like a secular Christmas song. It bothers their spirit. I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just the way they're shaped. They hear something like that in church and it's like, should that be in church? Is that right? Is that wrong? And listen, for those of you who felt that way today, I want you to know I'm sorry. I apologize. I get the tension in your soul because I, I mean, I was raised that way. I was raised in churches like that. 
I remember when Stan showed up when I was a kid at our church and he did the Michael W. Smith thing instead of the worship thing that we did. And he had his keyboard and he had his sweater instead of his suit and he put the words on the wall instead of the book. And I remember listening to my parents complain about him with all the other adults until Stan took his sweater and his keyboard and he went someplace else and we went back to the old way. Like I was raised in churches that that struggled with trying to figure out the tension of tradition versus just celebration. Just last week, I was with my mom and dad on Thanksgiving, and I was asking my dad, their, their church is in like a pastoral transition time. And I was asking my dad, tell me about the guys who have been preaching and what you're looking at. And he was kind of telling me about them. And he said, yeah, there's this one cool guy who shows up, and he has to preach in jeans every time he's there. And I just thought, like, but like dad, um, like, I, you know, I do that. Like, are you saying I'm cool? Like, I couldn't figure out, like, what the point what he was saying. I had someone this morning at 8.30 say, man, you look like George McFly today. Um, I wasn't trying to look like George McFly today, but I, you know, I, get, I get that a little bit. Apologize if Back to the Future offends you a little bit, but I, I, like, I get that. So I apologize if, if you're here and your soul feels tension over secular Christmas and church Christmas together. I'm sorry, but I also want to say this. Thank you. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for believing in our mission. Thank you for working past some difficulty in your own soul because you see us as a church who's reaching people who didn't grow up in church like we did and they know nothing of the tradition that we know. Thank you for putting up with the noise because you know what the noise is? It's construction. It's construction of a bridge built to a place that we don't stand anymore. It's construction for a bridge built for people that we don't need to cross anymore. But instead of standing on the bank saying, we don't want to be bothered by that, we say, man, I remember when I was far from God and I need someone to reach out to me, so we trust you. Don't ever do anything sinful from the stage, but if you want to do things to attract people, if you want to use Christmas to draw people to Jesus, instead of lose Christmas because it's offensive to Jesus, do it. Listen, Jesus knew that Herod not only wasn't bringing a gift, he knew he was bringing a sword. And he not only came, he stayed. And he stayed even when they brought the cross. Why? Because he knew a bridge needed to be built to people that needed to know Jesus. That's what Christmas is about. And the real enemy of Jesus at Christmas is the heart that won't allow Jesus to become the king of their life. The real enemy of Christmas, the real enemy of Jesus is not at Target. The real enemy of Jesus is is not at Starbucks. The real enemy of Jesus is not the winter play at our kids' school. The real enemy of Jesus sits within the seats of Journey Church International for the people who say, you know what, I love Jesus, but he can't have all of me. He can't be in charge of my life. You see, Christmas forces us to ask a hard question. I believe the most difficult spiritual question to answer is the question, who's in charge? And this is what Herod was challenged with. And I'm telling you, it forced him not only to try to kill Christmas, but to try to kill Jesus. The moment in Matthew chapter 2 that stopped the early church in its tracks. Listen to me. For the first several hundred years when people read the book of Matthew, knowing who Herod was, when they read Matthew 2, 2, they all went like this. (gasps) What? Say, why? Because of the threatening question. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, circle the word Magi, my entire Bible study next week is about the Magi, I'll teach you about them. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Listen, the last person you wanted to go ask who the king, where the king of the Jews was, was Herod, who was threatened by anyone who might become the king of the Jews. Like, can you picture Herod on this day? The wise men show up, they knock on his door, he answers the door, and they say, hey, do you know where we can find the king? He says, you're looking at him. And they say, no, the real one. They said that bothered Herod. And it bothered everyone in Jerusalem because they had seen what Herod had done. But you know what? Christmas is not a story about Jesus coming to visit Herod. The story of Christmas is a story of Jesus coming to visit you and saying, hey, who's in charge of your life? Who's really in charge of your life? Who makes the decisions for your family? Have you given Jesus control of the way your family lives this life? Who makes the decisions for your finances? Do you spend and save and give the way that Jesus says to, or are you in charge of Who makes the decisions for your emotions? Who's in charge of your emotions? Do you forgive the way Jesus tells you to forgive, or do you grudge the way you allow yourself to judge? Do you release things to God, or do you hold on to bitterness? Who's in charge of your emotions? Who's in charge of your politics? Who made the decision for who you voted for this year? Did you spend even 60 seconds on your knees asking this question? Jesus, I'm not sure what I want to do, so show me who you would vote for and why and how I can love someone who's voting in a different way than I did. Is Jesus in charge of your politics or do you make those decisions yourself? How about your schedule? Who determines your schedule and where God fits into your schedule? How about your secrets? Have you given Jesus a key to the secrets of your life and said, Jesus, I trust you with these. I'll do whatever you tell me to do with my secrets in order to get healthy. For those of you who are single adults, how about your future marriage? Who makes that call for you? Are you waiting for the person Jesus brings to you or have you lost patience and you're moving in that direction? For the teenagers that are in here, when it comes to your self-esteem, your identity, your reputation, who you're comfortable being. Does Jesus tell you who to be or does Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter tell you who you're supposed to be as a young person? You see, that's a threatening question, who's in charge? Who's in charge here? Who makes the decisions? And that is the question of Christmas. And like Herod, any of us who have any place in our life where Jesus wants to step in and we say, wait a minute, in that moment we've become like a little King Herod. We all have places in our life we don't want to give God control of And the person who sits on the throne of those places in our lives is a little King Herod. So let me share with you three things that can help you identify a little King Herod in your life this morning. First, little King Herod sits on every throne of your life that you haven't given Jesus control of yet. So what are the areas of your life that you haven't given Jesus control of yet? A lot of you say, oh, I've let Jesus into every area of my life. That's not the question I've asked. You see, there's a big difference between giving Jesus permission and giving Jesus control. And a lot of us have let Jesus into our life. We just don't let him run our life. You know, my son is 15. He got his permit a few months ago. The other day we were driving and we were kind of jacking around in the car and we were going somewhere and I said something and he's like, you know, you better, like, you better be careful, I'm driving. And I kind of laughed and I said, you may be driving, but I am in control. Like, you, you may have the keys, you might, might, might even be in the driver's seat but I am in control of where we're going. I can't tell you how many Christians have given Jesus a permit to their life, but they are in control. Like you might say, oh, Jesus is behind the wheel. Sure he is, but you tell him where to drive. You tell him how fast to go. You tell him where to turn. 
Like, Jesus has a permit to your life, but not a license to your life. Like, do you understand, Jesus doesn't want to come into your life to be a co-pilot. Like, when Jesus steps into the cockpit of your life, he wants to take your seat at your controls, and he wants you to go sit in the passenger cabin, and he, and he basically says, trust me. Just trust me for where I will lead and guide your life. And a lot of us, we hear that, and it scares us. Why? For the same reason it scared Herod, because we've got a little King Herod sitting on the throne of some part of our universe that when we think we might lose control of it, even to Jesus, it causes us to freak out a little bit. A lot of Christians have given Jesus a permit, but not the license. Is Jesus... Does he have total control of your life to go wherever he wants to go in your life? Or are you sitting in the seat telling him where and when he can do things spiritually for you? You see, when we look at King Herod, we also learn, secondly, the little King Herod inside of us, he wants all of God's blessing without all of God's authority. Say, what do you mean by that? It's somebody who really wants God to bless him, but he doesn't want God in charge of him. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like anyone you know? You know, when we read about Herod in history, Herod worked his entire life to build this identity as a great builder, and it worked. Herod worked his entire life to build a great reputation for himself and a great political position for himself. Herod worked to set up a certain type of lifestyle for himself and to leave a certain legacy. And as a part of this legacy, he wanted the religious world to not just accept him, but to love him and to bless him. It's why Herod spent 46 years. Let me say that again. Some of us in here aren't even 46 years old. Herod spent 46 years rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem because he wanted to earn God's blessing. He wanted the priest to make sacrifices on his behalf. He wanted the pastors to pray for him. He wanted all of God's blessings, but none of God's authority. And there are too many Christians that live with a little King Herod in their life that say, yes, I want all of God's blessings, but I do not want God to tell me what to do. Some of us sadly are like this because number three, the little King Herod inside of us is fine with Jesus in our world as long as he doesn't overstep our boundaries. And ultimately Christmas is about Jesus breaking through the boundary that you have set up And coming to say, I want to be king in this area of your life. I want you to give me control in this area of your life. I want your trust in this area of your life. Christmas is about Jesus overstepping the boundaries you've set up and saying, let me get a little closer to you and let me be in charge. And when you see people who say, I want Jesus, but on my terms, you see someone who looks like, a little King Herod. And we have to ask when we see ourselves that way, and when we see so many others who are that way, we have to ask, well, why would Jesus come? Like if Jesus knew he was coming to a world like that, like why didn't he just stay home? Even in 2016, if Jesus knew this Christmas season he was coming to people who wanted his blessings but not his authority, why doesn't he stay home? If Jesus knew he was coming to a people who would be fine with him being in the world spiritually but they wouldn't want him to overstep the boundaries of their life and their marriage and their parenting and their business, why wouldn't he just stay home? The question we have to try to dig deep to answer is why. You know, for the longest time it was when. Do you know that for the first 300 years of the church, they didn't celebrate Christmas like the world didn't celebrate Christmas? 
It was only in 336 AD after Constantine became the Roman emperor and he became a Christian that he said, hey, this is something we should celebrate. This is a pretty big deal. So for 300 years, people celebrated Jesus without having Christmas. And do you know when the Romans tried to celebrate Christmas, they said basically, when can we celebrate Christmas? And they picked December 25th because it was a pagan holiday that was already being celebrated. And, and here's kind of what they said, because no one really knows when Jesus was born, but it was probably not December 25th. They basically said this, what secular holiday can we force Jesus into and take over so that eventually the world will worship Jesus and not this thing? I find that ironic that 2,000 years later, the world is saying, what Christian things can we take over and celebrate even though we can rip Jesus out of them? But the Romans put, Christmas on December 25th, you know why? Because it was the festival of the sun celebrated right after the winter solstice. So what's the winter solstice for those of you who aren't science geeks like me? It's December 21st. It's the time when the world is the darkest where we live. There's more minutes and seconds of darkness on December 21st than any other day of the year. It's the darkest, least sunlit day of the year. And the Romans coming out of December 21st celebrated the God of the sun because they believed the sun gave life. And they said, moving away from December 21st, we are leaving darkness and we're heading towards light. And the Roman Christians said, what a great way to celebrate Jesus coming into darkness so we could leave darkness and head towards Light. Why would Jesus come? Jesus comes to pierce the darkness and to bring light that is life. Why would Jesus step into a world like Herod's? Because he wanted to pierce the darkness and bring life. Why does Jesus want to step into your world and be king? Not because he wants to take over, but he wants to pierce the darkness and bring life. Because regardless of how successful and strong our life might be under little King Herod, we still live in a dark place that needs light. So Matthew described Jesus coming in Matthew 4, 16 this way. He said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I find it interesting that you know when Christmas is getting ready to occur by the way our neighborhoods light up. The businesses light up. The homes light up. There's something about Christmas that signifies light piercing the darkness. And it's beautiful. I love driving through my neighborhood during Christmas. And when New Year's comes and all the lights are off, it's like, wow, what a boring, dead place. The world with Jesus brings light. The world without Jesus is darkness. And 2,000 years ago, the light of the Christmas story was Jesus. The darkness was Herod. But the potential of Jesus breaking through could bring life to everyone. And now in 2016, the light of the Christmas story is still Jesus. But the darkness is the parts of us that won't let Jesus in. And I think this Christmas, God wants us to be most focused on ourselves. In the dark places in our life that have a little King Herod sitting on the throne, God wants to step into our heart and say, listen, this Christmas I'd like to... I'd like to step over the boundary. This Christmas, I'd like to provide blessing with authority. This Christmas, I'd like you to go ahead and move out of the cockpit and give me control. And I promise you can trust me. That's what the potential of this Christmas is if you will let the light of Jesus pierce the darkness. But to do that, you have to ask yourself some serious questions this morning. What areas of your life is Jesus still not in control of? 
What areas of your life do you know that Jesus says go right and you go left? What areas of your life is Jesus saying slow down but you're speeding up? What areas of your life is Jesus saying just trust me and you're saying no, I need to hurry up and make my own decision? What areas of your life have a little King Herod sitting on the throne who's going to ruin everything when Jesus is trying to come and take over for the purpose of bringing light in life? Would you consider this Christmas season letting Jesus have access to all of you? Letting him be king for all of you so that his light in his life might penetrate even the darkest areas of our lives? Would you pray with me as we consider that this morning?